I draw your attention to Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 to 33. We continue our series on the king and his kingdom from Matthew's gospel, considering the final week of Jesus' life as he heads to the cross. This particular passage we might entitle the resurrection of the dead or the afterlife of the dead. Jesus had been confronted by the religious leaders and in response, he had told three parables or stories to show how they fell short of what they were supposed to be as God's leaders for the people and how they had led the people astray. And then they come to him with a set of trick questions and they want to trip Jesus up and make him look foolish in front of the people so that he loses followers. And in Matthew 22, verses 23 to 33, we see the second of those four controversies or questions. This question in particular, and Jesus' reply, considers what happens to a believer in God when they die. Is there an afterlife? Is there a resurrection? That's the question at stake. And first we see their setup of this question for Jesus. We begin in verse 23 and 24. The same day, the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies, having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. So the Sadducees come to set him up. In the previous section, you might remember it was the disciples of the Pharisees, as well as the Herodians who had come. And now the Sadducees want to try their hand to see if they can trip him up. These were the political leaders of the Jewish people. They were strongly connected to the Roman overlords, and they derived some of their authority from that sphere. They would rule politically, you might say, under Roman rule. And the Sadducees made up the vast majority of the 70 members of the Sanhedrin, the the court of judgment in Jerusalem, which met at the opposite end of the Temple Mount. Later on in the New Testament, we see in the book of Acts, for instance, that the disciples and apostles at different times were called uh, before this group, and this group sought to bring judgment on them for preaching the good news of Jesus. But what made the Sadducees different from, let's say, the Pharisees? Well, They too were very strict on Old Testament law, but they believed there was no resurrection of true followers of God. That is, once you died on this earth, that was it, the end of your existence, that you don't have a soul or anything that lives on. There is no afterlife and there is no resurrection. In this sense, they're much like many people today in our society who believe that this this earthly life is all there is. And when it's done, it's done. You don't live beyond it. Why didn't they believe in the resurrection, though? This seems like an odd belief for a follower of God to not believe in the afterlife or the resurrection. Well, it was because of their basis of authority, their starting point. You see, they only believed in the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, sometimes called the Torah or the Pentateuch. And unlike the Pharisees who held to what we think of as the whole of the Old Testament, all 39 books, the Sadducees only held to the first five as being authoritative. And so they argued that the idea of resurrection or afterlife was not contained in those first five books, and therefore it couldn't be true. Now, the Old Testament does speak of afterlife or the concept of a resurrection or something beyond this world when we die, especially if we're a believer. But the books that speak of that were books like Daniel or Job or Isaiah and a few others. 
but it wasn't seen to be contained in the first five books of the Bible. Now, notice they approached Jesus on the same day as his controversy in the previous section. That means that these trick questions, these controversies and public issues are happening in rapid succession. The Sadducees saw Jesus as a threat because they were afraid he would upset the precarious balance of power that they had under Roman rule. And their goal is to make him look foolish in front of as many people as possible and in a very public display. And by this means, they hope to destroy his influence. Now, the question is about an Old Testament law or a statement, and they summarize two verses of the Bible, Deuteronomy 25.5 and Genesis 38.8. They don't precisely quote it, but they summarize it, and they're accurate. But the command that they summarize was an Old Testament Jewish idea that if a father had several sons, the way that the law prescribed the inheritance had to work was that the vast majority of the inheritance went to the eldest son. Now, in our day and age, with our ideas of equality and egalitarianism, we might think that is unfair. And it certainly was not fair in the sense that not everyone got the same equal share. But it was not necessarily unjust. This was quite common in the ancient world. And for the Jewish people, there was a reason for this. That is because the eldest son, he was the one who carried on the line of the father. Although, All of the sons, in a sense, in today's vernacular, would have the same last name as the father, maybe. Uh, The eldest son was the one who was responsible to carry on the family name, the family tradition. And that was intricately connected to the land. Because you might remember in Jewish history, the way God set up the nation of Israel, is that the land would revert back to the original owners, whatever tribe, Um, and family group owned that of the 12 tribes of Israel, it would revert back to that group every seven years. So even though you could sell it for a few years at a time, perhaps if you needed a little extra cash, or you were not a very good farmer or businessman, or you made a poor deal of some kind, and you needed more liquidity, and so you might sell some land, but it would revert back to your family after a few years. The reason was, Because God designed all 12 tribes to dwell in the land of Israel and none of them, none of the tribes, none of the clans, and none of the families to be cut off forever in Israel. And so by this means, what was able to happen was that the oldest brother was able to maintain the family line. And if he died without having any children, then the next oldest brother was expected to marry his eldest brother's widow. This did two things. One, it kept the family line going because now he was expected to raise up children in the name of his older brother, so to speak, so that the family line could continue. But also this way, the widow would be taken care of. And in a society where women couldn't as easily go out and just get an everyday five day a week job, this was very important. Otherwise, she would have really nothing to live on because as someone whose husband had died and having no children who were able to support her, she would be in a very difficult situation. And so through this command, she too would be provided for. And this is still practiced in several cultures around the world today, I might add. Um, So although it may be a little bit odd or foreign to us, it's not to many people. So if there was a resurrection... The reason the Sadducees are bringing this up is that because if there is a resurrection, 
what they're suggesting is in the afterlife, she would have to be married to all seven brothers in this passage. Here's what it says. It said, Moses wrote us this commandment saying, if a man dies, having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us and the first married and died and had no children left um, his wife to his brother. And so the two... And so too the second and the third down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all were married to her. So their idea is that if there is a resurrection, then this woman in the afterlife, in paradise or heaven or or whatever you wanted to call it, she would be guilty of the sin of polyandry, that is, one woman with several men, because they thought that if there is such a thing as resurrection, she would have to be married to all seven men simultaneously, or she would have to divorce six of them and only stay married to one. So they assumed. But notice their complete lack of concern. It's good for us to pause here. They're bringing this up as a trick question, but they clearly have no care for this woman, even if she is a a figment of their imagination or if she's real. They they don't care. There's no empathy here. They don't care about any of the individuals involved. This is purely a question to trick Jesus. And so the question itself is what's known as a reductio ad absurdum. It's the type of question that pushes the logic of an opponent's view to an absurd degree in order to show that it's wrong. And truly, this is an absurd situation. No one would think otherwise. And it seems the Sadducees have evaluated Jesus and his other teaching, and they think he's more closely aligned with the Pharisees who believe there was a resurrection and an afterlife. And so they're going to set him up with this question where there's no good answer, or so they think. But we might ask the question ourselves, had this ever happened? Had there ever been seven brothers who all die right after marrying the same woman and then she dies too? If you witness such a situation in real life, what would you think? If this was on the evening news, what would you think? Well, a logical explanation would be something like the woman had killed all of her husbands. She had poisoned them because interestingly, as soon as as soon as this um brother gets married to her, he dies mysteriously. This is a a very strange situation. It's an absurd situation. It's not realistic whatsoever. And that's important for us to understand. They're only setting up the situation in order to try to prove their theological philosophical point and make Jesus look bad. Their assumption is that after a resurrection, if there is such a thing, all human relationships will be exactly the same in the afterlife. And that's the problem they see. They seem to think that marriage must be eternal if the resurrection or afterlife is real. But why would they think that human earthly marriage is, is something that must be eternal? For ourselves today, if we go to a wedding ceremony and we're using the traditional vows, one of the vows is, till death do us part. We realize, and the New Testament makes this very clear, we realize that at death, death separates two married individuals. It severs the marriage relationship just by virtue of what death is. So why would we assume that if there's a resurrection, all the relationships here on earth are going to be exactly the same in heaven or paradise in the afterlife? 
But of course, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. They're just bringing this up to make anyone who does believe in the resurrection or in an afterlife to look foolish. They thought this was a gotcha question. And in answering this question, Jesus, in their mind, must either deny that there is an afterlife, which would mean he goes against multiple other Old Testament passages outside of the Pentateuch, or he must accept polyandry, one woman with several men simultaneously, which is expressly forbidden by God in the Old Testament law. Now, it is helpful, perhaps, for us to pause here for a moment. Polyandry is not something we often speak about. But it's instructive to know that both the religious leaders and Jesus within their argument here, all of them are assuming, and all the people listening would have assumed the same thing, that polyandry, one woman with several men simultaneously, is wrong. It's immoral. God was very clear on that point. He was very clear that that there are multiple sets of relationships that are wrong and against his word, against his law, and that he's the one who created marriage in Genesis 1 to 3. And that he gets to define what it is since he's its creator. And he has defined it very clearly for us. One man with one woman for life. But this is important to bring up because many in our current society are currently practicing this sin. And others want it to be legalized in the sense of they want the government to call this sort of a relationship. One woman with several men simultaneously. They want that to be called marriage as well. But polyandry is a perversion of God's creation. It's not acceptable for his creatures to practice. And this passage, along with many others, makes that quite clear. And it's sad that we would even need to pause and make that point. But yet, because so much of our society ignores or is just ignorant of what God has commanded and of what true morality is, we have gone our own way, as the book of Isaiah says. We've each followed our own selfish desires And it leads us to terrible outcomes, which dehumanize us, harm our society and one another. But then we see in verses 29 to 30, Jesus' initial response to them. Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Jesus begins his response by saying that the the Sadducees don't know the scriptures or the power of God. This means they have not interpreted the first five books of the Bible, the, the, the books that they think are scripture. They have not even interpreted those correctly. The ones they claim to know so well, and we're told in history that many of these Sadducees probably had the first five books of the Bible completely memorized. They knew them well in one sense, but he says, you've completely misunderstood them. Secondly, he says, you have denied the power of God. What he means there is they've denied it in the sense that they have said, God does not have the ability to raise the dead. He does not have the power or the authority to do that. So they've placed an artificial limit on God. Now, this tells us two things, one general and one specific, that is, What they're doing is they are, generally speaking, denying that God had the power to raise the dead across the board. God doesn't have the power to to cause an individual, a human being he's created, to have a soul that lives on after death in this life. There, There can be no afterlife. There can be no resurrection. God doesn't have the power to do that. But they're also saying something more specific, something that they didn't realize they were saying. 
but it's extremely important for us to understand this. In 1 Corinthians 15, 43, we read that Jesus was raised in power by God the Father. And in Ephesians 1, 19, we hear that the incomparably great power of God the Father was on display when he raised Jesus from the dead. And without knowing it, what the Sadducees have done, the, the very individuals who are supposed to be speaking on behalf of God and reminding people of the truth of God from his word, leading them toward God, those individuals are actually attacking the primary method that God has created for humankind to be saved, to be redeemed, to have a relationship with him. Because of our sin, we're alienated from God. And we need someone to come and pay the penalty and overcome sin, death, and hell. Because we know the result of sin is death and eternity apart from God. And so God orchestrated a plan he predetermined a plan where, whereby his son, Jesus, would come and die on a cross to take our penalty, but three days later rise from the dead, showing his victory over sin, death, and the grave. And the Sadducees have just said, there is no resurrection. But as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, if there is no resurrection generally, then even Jesus was not raised from the dead. So if there is no general resurrection, then Jesus specifically could not have been raised from the dead. And if Jesus was not raised from the dead, the Apostle Paul tells us, then we have no hope. We're still alienated from God and we are to be despised because we have believed a lie. But if they are the leading religious leaders and they don't understand all these basic things, and Jesus says these are basic things, verse 29, then the whole nation is in deep trouble. And Jesus has said before, you religious leaders are blind guides of the blind. And the result will be that both of you, that is you, the spiritual leaders who are blind and the people who are following you who are blind, both of you will end up in the ditch. No wonder Jesus had such harsh, harsh words for the religious leaders. What a sad state of affairs. We see in verse 30, the Sadducees, Jesus tells us, made a fundamental miscalculation. In the resurrection, the state or situation of those who are resurrected, those who enter the afterlife as believers of God, they're not going to remain in the same situation or state as they were here on earth. Rather, resurrected individuals become more like the state or the situation of angels who do not marry or procreate. Now, interestingly, some have misunderstood this passage and said, see, believers in God, when we go to be with him in the afterlife, when we're resurrected, we will be angels. No, that's not what he says. He says we will be like angels. In what way? Well, in the very specific way that just as angels don't marry or procreate, so too we are not going to marry and procreate. Jesus' point is that the analogy of this sevenfold widow is irrelevant because marriage is not going to occur in the afterlife the way it does here on earth. Believers who are resurrected and living with God in heaven will have a new set of relationships for all of eternity that fit that place in time, just as marriage fits this place in time in our relationships here. But then Jesus gives a further response and proof from scripture for what he's saying. Verse 31, and as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. 
he goes on to give them this further response with proof from the scriptures. So it's overwhelming. Not only does he say that the state or the situation of people in the afterlife in heaven with God is going to be different once they've been resurrected, but also he shows them something from the first five books of the Bible that they do accept as authoritative. What does he show them? You see, they had quoted him from Moses, from those first five books. They said, Moses said this. Who does Jesus quote back to them from the same first five books? He doesn't quote Moses. He quotes God. Now, Jesus is not saying that God and Moses disagree. Rather, he's making the opposite point. He's saying that God always agrees with himself. God is always true. God doesn't contradict himself. And so his word doesn't contradict itself. First five books of the Bible don't contradict themselves. All of the first 39 books in the Old Testament do not contradict themselves. And so the Sadducees have made a fundamental error is what he's saying. But before considering what Jesus said specifically, notice that he doesn't quote from one of the other books of the Old Testament, because the Sadducees, of course, would not have accepted that as authoritative. So he wisely quotes from the first five books. But notice also he doesn't do something else. He doesn't refer to types of what we might call resurrections that had already taken place in his earthly ministry. Remember back in Matthew 9, he had raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. Remember, he had raised the son of the widow of Nain in Luke chapter 7. And in John chapter 11, he had raised Lazarus from the dead. That one in particular is interesting because where Lazarus and his family lived was only a short distance from Jerusalem. And we're told in John chapter 11 that many of the religious leaders were there and they saw Jesus raise him from the dead. This could not have helped but get out as news to the other religious leaders. Jesus likely could have brought this up and the religious leaders standing there would have known what he was talking about, but he doesn't make that argument. Now, why doesn't he make that argument? Now, in this particular case, the passage doesn't tell us, but if we take what the rest of the New Testament tells us, this is instructive to us because if you argue from evidence, or I should say, if you argue from experience, That can easily be ignored. Why? Because your experience is different than my experience, which is different from someone else's experience. Religious experience is not bad. And the the Christian faith embodies within it true religious experiences. And in many senses, repentance is something you experience when you become a Christian. There are various aspects of the Christian life which we could say are experiences. Yes, that's true. But in order to make an argument of what we might call an objective, full-proof argument on a sure foundation, you can't argue from experience. You must argue from something more ultimate. Experience can always be argued with. But God's word, properly understood and interpreted and applied, that cannot be argued with because it is always true. And so Jesus knowing the authority of God's word, because of course he is the author of God's word. He is God. He goes straight to that because that is the ultimate authority. He doesn't go to any other basis of authority. Jesus takes them back to Exodus 3, 6 and a quote from God when he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But when God was saying that in the chronology of human history, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had already been dead for more than 400 years. 
400 years. But God does not say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Past tense in the sense that they're dead and gone and they can't come back. Rather, he says, I am present tense. This is Jesus' point. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what that means is that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive somewhere. They're still living they, they are living in the afterlife. They're, they've experienced some sort of resurrection or some sort of continuation of existence. They are with God at that moment as he says that I am still presently their God because I still have an ongoing relationship with them. Why? Because they are still alive. He's still their God because they are still alive and dwelling with him. Now, if that is true, then clearly there is some sort of resurrection or afterlife. That's the implication of Jesus' argument. And I would add to this something we find in the rest of Scripture, that if the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were to participate in the promises of God that he had given to them in the covenants, God made many promises to them and their descendants, if they were fully to realize all the promises and to actually see them, then there has to be a resurrection or some sort of afterlife because several of those promises were not completed or fulfilled within the lifetime of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So for God to keep those promises and for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to whom the promises were given to see the fulfillment of the promises, there needs to be a continuation of their life in some way, shape, or form. In this case, an afterlife or resurrection for them to experience the full fulfillment of all that God had promised. And we are told over and over again in scripture, God always keeps his promises. He always keeps his word. And that should be a great comfort to us, Christian. God always keeps his promise. Even if that means continuing our existence and carrying our soul into the afterlife, etc., he will do all that and he's promised to do all that. His word tells us that he has promised his promised to do that for his followers. And he's made us even much greater and more precious promises in Christ. Well, the Sadducees have no answer for Jesus because he had used God's unfailing word to back them into a corner. And the only way that they could try to argue against what Jesus had just said was to say that God was wrong in what he said in the Old Testament. But of course, that's blasphemy. God cannot be wrong. He cannot lie. His word too cannot fail because it comes from him and he cannot fail. And this leads us to four concluding applications. First, simply quoting a portion of the Bible that you think proves your position is not the same as understanding and following the teachings of scripture. Many use scripture, but it's the right use of scripture guided by God's spirit and applied to our life that is needed. The proper use of scripture, properly interpreting it, which is guided by God's spirit and applied by him to our life. That's what we need. Anyone with selfish desires and arrogance can twist the scriptures to their own ends. But actually responding to the scriptures rightly is a very different matter. And we see the distinction here with how the Sadducees wanted to use scripture and how Jesus uses it. Secondly, we must not interpret scripture in such a way as to place an artificial limit on God's power. The Sadducees thought that God could be involved in something like a new human life. There's a play on words here. That is, 
The Sadducees believed that God could be involved in a brother raising up children in his brother's name. That is, God could be involved in the process of a new child being conceived and born so that the older brother's line does not go out. But simultaneously, they say God cannot raise up humans in a resurrection. Well, if God is the author of life, he's the one who is responsible for the conception and the birth and the life of a child and every single human being on the planet. Surely he has the power to also continue that being's existence into the afterlife or to resurrect them or to place them into a new situation when their life on this earth is done. Neither of those things are hard for God, but the Sadducees had put this artificial limit on God. And many of us, like the Sadducees, we need a much bigger and more accurate understanding of who God is and his power. And we must not seek to limit the limitless God. Thirdly, God's word cannot contradict itself. The Sadducees set Jesus up in hopes that he would either say polyandry was acceptable, which of course God clearly condemns in his word, or that he would say there is no resurrection, which God clearly says there is in his word. But God's word never contradicts itself because God does not contradict himself. And anytime we think that the Bible is contradicting itself, that says more about a problem with us than anything else. Anytime we think the Bible is contradicting itself, take it from Jesus, we are wrong. And we clearly have not understood something properly the way we should. And this ties into the final application, which is, the doctrine of biblical inerrancy. God's word is inerrant. The Christian doctrine of biblical inerrancy is vital to understand, O Christian. And if you're not familiar with it, or this is perhaps the first time that you're hearing about it, then you need to consider it more fully. And you need to read up on it. This is a clear teaching of scripture that the word of God cannot err, it cannot fail, and it cannot contradict itself. All scripture is inspired by God, and it's absolutely true. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 and many other passages uh, make this argument. Jesus makes this argument over and over again, both in this passage and in the way in which he uses scripture in other passages. Jesus shows his confidence in God's word by basing his entire argument in this passage on the tense of a single Hebrew word that can only be done if you have absolute assurance, absolute confidence that the entire word of God is true down to the individual words, tenses, and letters. And Jesus had said elsewhere, until heaven and earth pass away, not the single smallest part of a word or a letter in God's word will ever pass away until all of it has been fulfilled. He had absolute confidence. How could he have such absolute unerring confidence in God's word? Because he was its author. As God himself in human form, he knew that we could trust the scriptures and he commended it to us. And that's why he utilized it over and over and over again. Because we're told in the scriptures that the word of God contains the truth of God, and when accompanied by the Spirit of God, as his word always is, it does the work in the heart and life of an individual. So we should take it from Jesus that we can have great confidence in God's word. It is always true. As the Christian children's song says, God's word can never fail, never fail, never fail. God's word can never fail. No, no, no. So trust it and base your life upon it. We see in this passage the wisdom of God, 
the limitless power of God and the unfailing, unerring word of God. But none of this will help you if, like the Sadducees, like many people in the crowd, you, you just sit there and then you walk away. What we see over and over again in this passage is the people are stunned. The people are amazed. The religious leaders are astounded at what Jesus says. No one can argue with him. But what do they do? They then walk away instead of embracing him. Don't walk away from the wisdom of God, telling you the word of God and showing you the limitless power of God. Instead, walk toward him. And then you will have hope. Let's pray. Father, I ask that your spirit would apply your word to our heart and help us walk toward you, not away from you. And may we have great confidence in your word and constantly go back to it, understanding it properly, your spirit guiding us to do that and applying it to our life. We ask this in your name. Amen.